You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. What better way to celebrate Christmas than to get back into the glorious book of Ecclesiastes? Uh, because meaningless, meaningless, everything that we just did is meaningless. Uh, one night last week, uh, after Sarah and I put our boys down to bed, decided to turn on the TV and, and watch a show. And we're going through our hundred different streaming services to figure out what to watch and came across a show that we had forgotten that we were watching as it was airing because apparently it's cliffhangers were just that grabbing to us that we just totally forgot about it. So we started watching it and thankfully the episode started with a montage telling you what happened before and it said previously on which was super, super helpful for me because I completely forgot some of the plot line. And so as we get back into Ecclesiastes after five weeks of being out of it, being in our Advent series and having one special sermon before Advent, I hoped it would be helpful for you because it was helpful for me to do a previously on Ecclesiastes edition. So as we've said in the last few months, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book for skeptics, for cynics, for those who are not content with the Sunday school answers to the hard questions of life. It's for people who are weary. It's for people who have had their expectations crushed. So the teacher starts his writing in this book to share any wisdom that he's gained by pointing out that everything is meaningless to him. And what he's really getting after is everything is like smoke. It's difficult or impossible to grasp. It's fleeting it won't last. And the word that we've brought around is this original word, hevel. Everything is hevel. The teacher is a man who's tried to find fulfillment in everything you can imagine and found it all to be hevel or smoke. The teacher tried to find satisfaction in so many things and yet they all failed him. So he explores wisdom upon wisdom and he found that with more wisdom came more sorrow and grief. He explored pleasure upon pleasure, denying himself nothing. And he had the wealth to deny himself nothing. And yet he observed, after he acquired everything, he realized that joy was smoke or chasing after the wind, he said. He explored hard work and found that to be meaningless because everything he works for is obtained by someone after him. He complains that God has set eternity in the hearts of man, and yet none of us can fathom the beginning or the end. He complains that the oppressor has no comforter and the, I'm sorry, the oppressed has no comforter and the oppressor sees no justice. He complains how death is the destiny for every single person. And we also in this room, every one of us, myself included, keep trying to find satisfaction under the sun, the phrase he says a lot. And man, Christmas time exposes this like no other often. Because our, our hearts are often set on having these perfect family gatherings, which just sets us up for missed expectations a lot. We can be so disappointed oftentimes in the gifts that someone spent their heart thinking that they were giving something to you that you were going to just treasure and love. And you're like, yeah, I'm taking that to a thrift store. Or much worse, you can suffer loss during this time. You can be reminded of loss during this time. And so Christmas time is often a time where if you really begin to think about your life, you can realize that our lives are hevel. It's hard to grasp something that's going to fulfill us. We must face the reality that there is nothing under the sun 
that can satisfy you or fulfill you. And that only the one who created the sun is capable of satisfying you. Larry Crabb uh, wrote this beautiful book several years ago where he, he poses it as a dialogue between himself and God as he's reading through the Bible. And he gets to the book of Ecclesiastes and he writes this as God's response to him when he asks some questions about the purpose of this book. So Crabb writes as God, he says, I wrote Ecclesiastes through the mind and soul of the man who in all history was best equipped to find full fullness of life without connecting deeply to me. The failure to face the bad news that Solomon discovered to ask the questions he could not answer is responsible for the shallow church of today. Emptiness is covered by distraction. Loneliness is numbed with sociability. Futility is denied in activity. Premature and superficial satisfaction with the good things of life prevents my people from grasping the incredible news that my reality of joy, community, and meaning has invaded theirs. So in other words, we're all, we all really know the truth of Ecclesiastes. We all know this, but we keep trying to band-aid it with distractions. We keep trying to tell ourselves that we'll be the ones who can be fulfilled by this, even though time after time, person after person has told us, X, Y, Z cannot fulfill you. So that's our previously on summary of Ecclesiastes. And the same message continues today, because even though we acknowledge this with our thoughts, our hearts still long to be satisfied by something less than God. So we're going to read our, our passage. So if you have a Bible with you, open in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Since this isn't just another book that you could grab off a shelf, this is inspired Word of God. We want to show it honor by standing as we read it. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. The teacher says, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether for love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have part in anything that happens under the sun. So go eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you're going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So Merry Christmas. Uh, let's pray. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you even for this book that might make us feel uncomfortable with the ways in which this teacher describes the life that you've created for us. 
especially as we finish out Christmas season, we, we have a tendency to want to put a veneer on our lives and relationships and pretend that these things are going to satisfy us. We have a hope and desire that our family is capable of fulfilling us, that the gifts we just received are capable of fulfilling us, or even that the resolutions that we plan to set for next year are capable of fulfilling us. We need to hear from you and experience your presence to show us that you alone are capable of fulfilling us. I read this week that someone pointed out that to live a life of humility is not thinking less of yourself. They, they went on to say it's not even thinking of yourself less, but rather living a life of humility is being utterly transfixed upon the immeasurable power and grace of our creator and redeeming God. Your majesty and your goodness, your kindness to us ought to cause us to tremble in our boots as we experience your love. We long to experience your love more and more. So Spirit, I ask that you manifest your presence with us this morning. Bring salvation to this room. Bring restoration to this room. Bring sanctification to this room. Bring exaltation to this room. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So the teacher continues his reflection on the world. And he's coming to some more conclusions about the way the world operates. And he's examined so much in his life. He's examined the insufficiency of so many things he's tried to fulfill him. And the travesty of injustice in the world. The frailty or feebleness of life. He's taken a look at it all and he concludes. The good and the wise and all they do are in God's hands. Now we've talked at length in sermons throughout this book that God is sovereignly in control of the affairs of our life. And this truth can be perplexing to us because God does not run the world the way that we would run the world, right? The teacher says that the wise are in the hands of God. That's to say that those who fear God are in the hands of God. The fear of God is seeing the majesty and greatness of the creator of all of life from solar systems to the intricate power of an ant. And not only the power of God, but they also see God's love and his grace and mercy towards us through Jesus. Those who fear God have wisdom because they know that all of life is found in God alone. Those people are in his hands. And yet, another perplexing part of this is that the teacher acknowledges that even the good and wise who are in God's hands, they don't know if it's for love or hate that they're dealing with. Even though you may practice spiritual disciplines, you may tie the tenth of everything that you have to give to the church. You may love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You cannot guarantee yourself an easy life. God is not transactional like that. And therefore, it can seem more like hatred to you than love because your life is not what you thought it would be. The only certainty in life that he tells us about is you will die. You won't know when or with what quality of life you can have before then, but you can be certain that you will die. He lists out groups of people who all suffer the same fate. The common destiny, he calls it. The wicked will die, but so will the righteous. The bad will lose everything at death, but so will the good. The unclean will fail to be fulfilled by their works, but so will the clean. He gets so angry with that reality of life that he calls an evil under the sun. And one person I read said that this usage of the word evil is more like tragedy. The tragedy of our entire existence is whether you live for good or for evil, we all die. And you cannot take anything with you. And in fact, you will be forgotten. 
We live in a world right now that has nearly 8 billion people. And it'll be impressive if you have over 100 at your funeral. In verse 3, he says, there is madness in the hearts of the people while they live. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrased this in the message. He wrote it as, is it any wonder that so many people are obsessed with evil? Is it any wonder that people go crazy right and left? All of life leads to death. That's it. We all die. We all suffer the great loss of our labors at death. And if there's any more to add to this, back in chapter 8, he laments the reality that all of um, the righteous one deserves, often the evil one obtains. And vice versa, the evil one, what they deserve, oftentimes it seems like the righteous one obtains that. Life doesn't seem to make sense. So what hope do we have in this world? Well, in verse 4, he says, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now, I realize that some of you may have gotten a puppy for Christmas. Congratulations. I thought about putting a photo of one of our staff families and their adorable dog on the screen, but I knew I'd completely lose you because you'd be Googling, how can you buy that puppy? Uh, I love dogs. We as a culture, most of us love dogs. However, dogs have like really upped their stock in the past 3,000 years. I took particular notice when I was watching the TV show, The Chosen, amazing show chronicling the life of Jesus and the disciples. And one of the disciples who's despicable because he's a tax collector adds to his despicability because he has a pet dog. And people are like, what do I do with this dog? Dogs in that time were like scavenging beasts, looked down upon, probably the way you look down upon the hyenas in Lion King. So times are different for dogs, but lions have essentially always been symbols of nobility. They are the kings of the jungle, even though they live in the savannah. But imagine the teacher saying, even a live hyena is better off than a dead lion. Why? The living know that they'll die. That's our hope. Knowledge that you're going to die. And he gets back to this like melancholy tone of cynicism about the world. The, the dead have no further reward, which I, I guess the reward for living is our meaningless life in this unfair world. The dead names, uh, the dead's name will be forgotten. And while you're living, at least someone knows your name. Everything about the dead, the good and the bad, will vanish. And so although he names that there's hope, I feel like he's writing with little hope in this passage. And now it's important to point out if you felt bad so far through, through the sermon, it's important to point out that the teacher is writing to expose the hopelessness of a humanistic, man-centric, fatalistic view on life. And this is important for us to know because if you're like me, when life gets hard, you can have a very similar short-sighted perspective on life. Like, woe is me. Like, why will God not come and fix this part of my life? We get in the same ruts. The teacher is not necessarily writing about the truth of the eternal realities of our life that we know. But he's expressing grief about his earthly experience under the sun, he says. His hope is basically knowing he's still living. And since he's still living, he says, to live your life with gladness and a joyful heart. And I love verse 9. This is the best wedding Bible quote I've ever seen. It says, enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of your meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. So all you folks planning weddings in 2022, and the one that I'm preaching I know of in 2022, I hope to hear that at the ceremony. 
he's going back through many of the topics. He's already gone through the first seven chapters of the book. And he says that the pursuit of those would never bring you ultimate satisfaction. They're, they're meaningless. It's heaven, It's smoke. You cannot attain that which you're looking for. And he comes back to those things in a short list. And he says, put in the right perspective of understanding that the good and the wise are in the hands of God. Your days are numbered. And those things cannot bring you satisfaction. Allows you to enjoy food, enjoy wine, enjoy marriage, enjoy work for their God-created intentions. I'm in, indebted to a pastor who gave me his framework for wedding ceremonies uh, several years ago. And if you've been to a wedding preached by Adam Breckenridge, I think the language is similar because we got it from the same guy. As I close the message and right before the vows to love one another all the days of their lives, I always read this to them. I look to the groom and say, this bride of yours is not the satisfaction of all your deepest longings. She does not have the capacity to do that. God never intended her to be that for you and to look to her to be for you. What God alone can be for you is nothing short of idolatry. The good news is that this knowledge frees you to look for that satisfaction in the only one who can give it, God, and all that he is for us in Jesus now and forever. And also, it allows you to see and enjoy her as the woman God created her to be, not the sinful expectations you'll be tempted to place on her. And then I'll do the same thing for the groom. And I'll actually do the same thing for the entire congregation and say, hey, to look to your spouse, to look to your children, to look to your work, to be for you what God alone can be for you is nothing short of idolatry. But it's good news to know that because it allows you to look to God as the only one who can satisfy, the only one who can fulfill you. And it allows you to look to those things for the ways in which God has created them to be for you. And you can truly enjoy them without this like expectation that they're never going to be able to fulfill. You see, even in this beautiful relationship of marriage, which Paul calls a metaphor for the mysterious relationship between Jesus and the church, even in that beautiful relationship is hevel, smoke. It cannot satisfy you ultimately, which is why divorce runs rampant in our culture. Men and women want to demand we get our own ways. And sadly, this all too often ends in abuse in a relationship because you see we're trying to grasp for something that cannot be grasped while trying to find ultimate satisfaction in our marriage or we're trying to grasp it in something out there in the world and it disappoints us so bad that we take it out on those that are closest to us hevel causes a lot of conflict in our lives the teacher tried every possible way to find satisfaction in his life He even tried to find out the inequality of life and he could not understand it. And neither will you. So the teacher says, just enjoy it. Don't overhype it. Don't attempt to be ultimately satisfied. Just enjoy that aspect of your life. Don't let what you cannot understand destroy what you can enjoy and what you know to be true. One pastor even said it this way, and I have a little bit of a cold, so this word's hard for me to say right now. (laughs) Enjoy your life with an asterisk. Really, it's a few asterisks. (laughs) The thing he tells you to enjoy, asterisk number one, the thing he tells you to enjoy cannot satisfy you ultimately. But God has given them to us for our good and pleasure, which we do for his glory. To look to those things for satisfaction is sin. All right, asterisk number two, life is often unfair. All, All too many people die before we believe they should, it seems like. My own mom died in her 40s before she ever got to meet my sons. 
you don't know how many days you have on this earth. So asterisk number three, we will all die. And hopefully the certainty that that death is coming will drive you to live in the present right now and get, like, get off your phones and just be with people and enjoy your life, not some virtual life online. So as we approach the new year, you might be thinking through some New Year's resolutions, and I have two encouragements for you. Number one, do it. Commit to it. Enjoy it. Set yourself a goal for 2022 and achieve that goal. There's really good things in setting those types of goals. And number two on those uh, resolutions, don't put all your hopes of fulfillment on achieving that goal. Whether it be something you plan to do or stop doing, achieving that goal in 2022 will not bring you the desire, that you, the, the satisfaction that you desire. God alone can do that. And if you've placed your trust in the truth that Jesus came to take away your sins, you can have a certainty that the teacher does not include here. And that certainty is you can enjoy God forever because Jesus took away your sins. The teacher doesn't mention it explicitly, but back in chapter 8, in verse 12, he has a beautiful truth. He says, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him. So as we approach the end of this book of Ecclesiastes, we'll spend more time on this peculiar phrase to fear God. But the teacher is saying that there's another level of certainty for those people. It will go well with you in the end. We can lament the fact that bad things happen to good people, it seems, in this life. And it seems like the wicked can get off free. It hurts to see that in our world. That is still truth. But another truth is that we are actually all on the side of evil. If we're drawing a line in the sand, every single one of us are on the side of evil. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all, every one of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequences for that is death. Because Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is only one who has ever lived without sin and never deserved the hard life that we experience on earth. And he took what the evil ones deserve. He took what you and I deserve. That's actually the only evil under the sun. The fact that Jesus suffered the consequences for our sin. You see, Jesus came at Christmas not just to give good gifts to good kids. Not just to be an example for us. You see, he came to restore us to a relationship with God. But in order for him to do that, he had to take the consequences for your sin and mine. The righteous Lamb of God took what you and I deserve. And he gave us what he alone deserved. He adopted us as sons and daughters and gives us the inheritance of his kingdom. And that satisfies. That's the only thing that satisfies. And that satisfies past the grave because even if you find something in this world that you believe is satisfying you, without being connected to God, you will not experience that satisfaction beyond the grave. And if you've not trusted in these realities about Jesus, your certainty beyond the grave is hopeless. So I implore you this morning, look to Jesus. See how much he loves you. 